Welcome to A Different Way of Traveling. This is a podcast where we discuss travel for persons with disabilities and special needs in South Africa and beyond with our host, Lois Strachan. Join us as we share inspiring stories of people who travel, exciting accessible travel experiences, and showcase service providers who will accommodate those with special needs. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to today's episode of A Different Way of Travelling, a podcast on accessible travel brought to you by Accessible South Africa. I'm your host, Lois Strachan. Today's guest on the podcast is Mark Bannister. But before we dive into the interview, we'd like to ask that if you haven't already done so, please follow the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Right, let's meet Mark Bannister. Today on A Different Way of Travelling, we're chatting with Mark Bannister, who's done a considerable amount of travels, and we're going to chat to him today to learn a little bit more about those. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you, Louis. And hello to you and hello to your listeners. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm always curious to learn about the travels that people have had and some of the experiences. So really great to share those stories on the podcast. Maybe we can just start off by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit of your basic story. Sure, thank you, Louis. Um, yeah, as you say, my name is Mark Bannister. Um, I was born in a very famous city in England uh, called Liverpool, which some of you will have heard of, uh, famous for the, the football club and the Beatles. Um, and I grew up there um, to the age of 18. Um, I found at the age of uh, just over one years of age when um, I didn't start to walk, um, that um, uh, they, uh, my parents took me to the, the doctors to do a, 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 a muscle sample to find out uh, why I wasn't walking. And they discovered that I had um, a form of muscular dystrophy. And so, um, basically, as I grew up, I, I only started to walk when I was about five years of age. And um, I, I literally kind of graduated from a pram into a wheelchair. Uh, but I could walk a little bit, and I would, um, on long distances, I would push my wheelchair like a, a, a trolley. And uh, then if I wanted to go a little bit faster, then I'd jump in the wheelchair and get pushed around by my school buddies to uh, to get to for me to be as quick as possible. Um, as I kind of grew up in Liverpool, um, I knew I had this disability called muscular dystrophy, but I didn't really know what it was, and it wasn't really uh, discussed much in the family. I just we just kind of carried on uh, as a regular family, and, and never but never really kind of discussing the issue. Um, so um, at about the age of about ten or twelve, I. Um, Went to the local library and I busy read books on various types of disabilities, found out what muscular dystrophy was, 
And at the time, I didn't realize there were 37 different types. And I, I found that or I read that uh, my life expectancy would probably be around about 21, 22 years of age, which uh, took me back uh, by surprise a little bit. And uh, it did concern me. But at the same time, it made me want to do uh, a lot of great things in the short time that I thought I had at the time. Um, I had a particular interest in uh, motorsport at the time. My family were big Formula One fans, and we used to go to all the Grand Prix and races. And at the age of um, uh, 14, um, I got myself a, a secondhand go-kart and started racing, um, which at the time, um, as a disabled person, I was the only disabled person, wheelchair user in the UK, with a, a British competition license. So I was racing against able-bodied people. I would exchange my wheelchair. They'd push me to the demigrid and they'd lift me into the go-kart and off I went racing with uh, uh, lots of able-bodied people. And they'd be looking at me saying, gosh, we must keep out of this guy's way. Uh, he looks a little bit dangerous with his oversized steering wheel and his feet strapped to the pedals. Um, but then um, the next thing is I was... Uh, running away in the front. And um, over the next few years, I became the provincial champion in 1981, 1983 against able-bodied people, which was uh, made me quite famous within the karting fraternity in the UK. And, um, uh, and I was had articles in magazines and I was on television, all sorts of stuff like that. But it basically opened up lots of opportunities. So... Um, Although I was never going to become the next Michael Schumacher or next Lewis Hamilton, I had a great interest in the engineering side of it. I used to spend hours in the garage rebuilding uh, the engines and tuning them and stuff like that. And I suddenly decided that I wanted to follow mechanical engineering and try and get into race car design. Um, so I pursued that avenue. And um, then I tried to get to university to study mechanical engineering. And you know, what I found was that um, there was a lot of naivety back in those days um, in that um, as a disabled person, every university I went to to try and join mechanical engineering degree, they said, we've never had anybody with a disability before and we, uh, we don't recommend it. It's too physical. You're going to have to stand up and work on lathes and milling machines and all that kind of stuff. But every time I got rejected, it just pushed me even more to do it because this is what I really wanted to do it at the time. So um, I eventually uh, got into um, a polytechnic, Bristol Polytechnic, to study mechanical engineering uh, after about eight rejections, uh, all based on whether it was a, an excuse or not, but they said because on the physical requirements. But with the polytechnic, I pursued that, which was great. Immediately, I qualified um, because of the karting experience and because of other adventurous things I'd done in the past, um, knowing that I still might only survive till my early 20s or middle, middle 20s at most, um, somebody came to me and offered me an opportunity to, to work on uh, a development project in South America. Um, I'll expand that a little bit more, but it's called Operation Rally. And they had a group of 100 ventures that were going out to... Uh, the southern part of South America and Chile um, to do community development work. And um, I jumped at the chance. I thought, well, okay, I've just got my qualification and um, 
let me go and have a little bit of fun. So I got on to Operation Rally and went to South America. And that changed my whole focus of interest from wanting to be a, a race car designer to actually um, wanting to follow development because development work gave me so much excitement to be able to give back to the communities where in the past I've always been assisted myself. But what for once I had this engineering knowledge that I could apply to people who had nothing. And um, that was really, really satisfying for me. Um, when I came back, um, I went, uh, I was also had an opportunity to join Camp America in the States uh, to work with uh, physically and mentally challenged children uh, at summer camp, at a summer camp in the States. This was, a, again, it was almost like a year off at the time. Um, Camp America would pay for the flight uh, and the travel to an American summer camp, and then you basically would work there for three months. Um, I found out that also Camp America had never taken anybody with a disability like my own, nobody in a wheelchair before. And that really was a, a first, and they were kind of quite nervous about that. But then I persuaded them that I, I won't let them down and I'll go and deliver what I have to. But what I found out, I mean, besides having a great time working on a summer camp, I found out more about my disability. Um, I'd been very naive about it before then. Um, I still thought, well, you know, maybe I've only got a few years, but I wasn't really deteriorating that much, but I just read or, or kind of knew what I read. Um, but I found out there's 37 different types of muscular dystrophy. And um, digging deeper, um, I discovered that I had uh, a condition called spinal muscular atrophy type 2, which although it's part of the family of muscular dystrophy, um, and it does get progressively worse, um, life expectancy is pretty normal. And um, you have to maintain your disability with a certain amount of exercise. Too much would make it worse. Too little would also make it worse. So you have to get the balance right. But this was like a fantastic feeling. It was like I was reborn because suddenly, instead of thinking I might only live to 25, at the time I was probably about uh, 2021, I suddenly realized that uh, I can enjoy a full life. And this was, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to explain what was going through my mind at the time because I was loving life. I was doing so many different things and suddenly I realized that I could have so much more time to do this. Um, so then, um, having finished with Camp America, um, I then decided to pursue the development work. I still had an interest in motorsport, obviously, but I wanted to follow development. So I got into water and sanitation engineering, working for um, initially Seven Trent Water and then Welsh Water in the UK. Um, but I still had this passion inside me to follow my travel desires. So um, I'd never been to, um, to Africa before. I really wanted to go to Africa. And there's an organization in the UK called Voluntary Service Overseas, which um, they would take professional people like doctors and engineers and teachers and lecturers and um, right across a broad spectrum of, of uh, professional skills. And they would place individuals for a two-year period, usually in an NGO, a non-governmental organization, which um, 
can't afford to pay for a professional person, but need a professional person to carry out their work. And so I applied for VSO as soon as I got back from Camp America, and they rejected me. They said, first of all, we've never had anybody in your situation before. So it was a first for Operation Rally. It was a first for Camp America. Now it's basically, again, a first for VSO. Um, they rejected me, first of all, on the basis that um, I didn't have sufficient skills. Although I was qualified in mechanical engineering, I had no experience other than how to drink 10 pints of beer on a Saturday night and, and make a fool of myself. So they wanted me to go out and, and work, which makes sense. So um, my little time in water and sanitation wasn't sufficient. Every year I kept applying and reapplying and reapplying. And after five years, they suddenly realized this guy wasn't going to give up. So they um, they offered me a position um, with uh, the Umbrella Trust in South Africa. And obviously I just snatched their hand and said, great stuff, let's go. And so by that time, I was the lead mechanical engineer um, at uh, Welsh Water. And um, I gave that up for two years. And I'd saved up over the five years I'd been applying it with, with the determination not to, to go up that I would be going. And eventually I was going. And I went to uh, join the Umbrella Trust in, in South Africa. Basically, the SO pays for the flight over. They pay for basic accommodation. So I moved straight to Limpopo, where I lived in a little rondavel, uh, in the, in the rural area, um, which, um, had scorpions living under the freezer and I had snakes running around the house. Um, but basically for two years, I was working seven days a week, 12 hours a day, building water sanitation projects for the communities in Limpopo province. And it was the most fantastic experience. Um, even though I was using a wheelchair, um, I would work with the communities to uh, to build a water project, to basically dig trenches, lay pipes, fix those pipes together, build reservoirs, pump stations, get the water flowing, put stamp pipes in the communities. And all this was done with the community. We'd train them to begin with. It would take maybe 18 months or two years to complete a project. They would pick me up in my wheelchair. They'd lower me in the trenches. So I'd be sitting in my wheelchair in the trench, showing them how to connect the pipes together. They'd build a reservoir on the top of the mountain, and they'd say, hey, you know, we've um, we've carried generators up here. We can carry you, and we want to show you what we've done. So they'd pick up my wheelchair and, and uh, tie me into it so I didn't fall out and carry me up the mountain to go and have a look at the great work they'd done. And this was such a wonderful experience because unlike in the UK, um, I found that people didn't see me with a disability. In the UK, people would look at somebody with a physical disability and assume that they've got a mental challenge as well. You had to prove you had a brain in the UK. Um, but here, the wheelchair was invisible as far as the community was concerned. They just wanted water and sanitation. They wanted help, and I was there to help them. And that proved uh, so fantastic. Um, I'm, I, I know I'm waffling on a bit here, but there's some uh, some interesting stuff here. Um, so working with the communities, I found that, um, again, besides the disability seemed to help break down barriers to some extent. Um, but besides that, I made sure that I learned uh, a little bit of Venda, a little bit of Sutra, a little bit of Tsonga, all the languages that were spoken 
in Limpopo. And you know, you go into a community where um, they see you as this, this kind of big white contractor and the eyes would be low down and there'd be no or little trust between the community and myself as a new arrival. But then I would start speaking vendor, for example, and greet them in vendor and start speaking basic words. words. And you see those barriers break down, just like with the disability, and the eyes would lift up. The big smile would come on the face. They couldn't believe that I could speak a little bit of the language. And all of a sudden, um, every barrier had gone, and we just worked together as a team to to build uh, water projects. So, um, yeah, I mean, I had eight years at the Umbrella Trust, best working years of my life. Uh, it didn't feel like I was working. It felt like um, a, a long holiday. And because of the kind of environment I was working in, um, obviously the wheelchair would only get so far. And when um, people, uh, if they couldn't carry me up the mountain or whatever, and I had to get into the bush to see the pump station, um, I came over to South Africa with a quad bike. And uh, it was modified, and there's a story behind that as well when I used it in Chile. Um, but that quad bike would take me all over Limpopo. I had it made road legal on long distances. I would carry it on the trailer. I would get out, pull it off the trailer, and then ride off into the uh, into the sunset. And, um, yeah, so that kind of helped me to do my work. It also um, took me places where the wheelchair couldn't get. Um, but ultimately... I found everything that I did uh, in South Africa a, a great challenge. And every time I pushed myself beyond what my I thought my disability would allow me to do so, then it just uh, encouraged me even more to, to move on and try other things, etc. That's a um, lovely Right story. now I work with this problem. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, and I'm still here 24 years later. And, uh, you know, the joke is that... Uh, I, I, I lost my return ticket, so I'm still here. But the truth is, I, uh, I met my beautiful wife here, and uh, and now we've got a couple of kids and 2.2 dogs, and I'm not going back to England now. So uh, but I'm still here working for the Department of Water and Sanitation now. An extraordinary story with a number of different aspects that all touch on the element of travel. And that's what we're really talking about today, on the podcast because a different way of traveling but we're talking about how people travel and why they travel and some of the realities of those travels but you've done a significant amount of travel you've touched on a few of the elements already in what you've shared with us and there's definitely a lot of extra bonus material talking about the work that you're doing and how you do that that is exciting to hear but let's look at your your basic almost your um your summary of the travels that you've done louis you know um when i finished uh polytechnic and i had this kind of travel itch i wanted to uh, address um like many students i didn't have very much money at all and so i tried to tried to explore ways of being able to travel with no money, which is particularly difficult when you do have a disability because sometimes the same opportunities uh, are not there, but you look for other opportunities. Now, for example, um, I really wanted to go and visit uh, Hong Kong and China. And I had a friend from college that I 
shared a house with who lived in Hong Kong. And I thought, let me go and stay with the family. And then that's going to keep the cost down. But how do I get out there? Now, at the time, um, there was a, a system, for example, where courier companies like DHL would, um, the way they work is that they book uh, a seat on a plane to a part of the part of the world that they, they do regular business. And um, they pay for that seat. And then they put somebody on that seat who travels like a normal passenger, but they carry various goods. Um, it may be a part for a printing machine that needs to go to, in this case, Hong Kong. And um, I would carry, uh, I, I travel like that, but I, I carried papers with me that, from DHL. And those papers would relate to the parcels that were being carried. There was nothing illegal. It was all kind of a, above board, but uh, this is how career companies work. So if you apply, this is back, back, you know, quite some time ago in the UK, if you apply and say, look, I want to go Hong Kong, and they give you a date, when uh, roughly when you want to go, and then you know, I had two choices. I could either go direct to Hong Kong, where I'd have to pay, I think it was about £100 at the time, uh, towards that return ticket, or they could take you on different a different route around the world. So I chose the one from London to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Alaska, Alaska to Japan, Japan to Hong Kong. You, you, although you go through customs and you go out into the airport, you find the DHL guy, you transfer the papers, you jump onto the next plane. You don't have any time to stay there. But it meant I could go for free. Now, when I did the application, what was interesting was that um, they didn't ask if you have a disability or not. They just said, you know, what date do you want to go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I didn't tell them I had a disability. And it was only... Um, I think the day before when I rang up the airline and said, look, I'm going to need some assistance. I can walk slowly onto the plane, um, but I leave my wheelchair at the door of the plane. And then at the other end, I'm going to have to have my wheelchair waiting for me at the door so I can carry on from there. Well, three hours before I was due to go to the airport, I was down in London and I got a phone call and they were so angry with me because I hadn't told them I had a disability. And I said, well, I didn't tell them I had a disability because I didn't feel it was necessary. I said, for starters, I'm the first one that gets on the plane before anybody else. And I said, even when I get off the plane, then I don't have to queue for passport control and customs. I get pushed right right past all the lines and uh, I'm quicker than anybody. So he didn't really understand this, but I, I, I remember um, he called me to his office and uh, basically had no choice because there was no one else to to go and uh so they gave me that chance and you know with flying colors i got to hong kong and passed all the papers on at the right place at the right time probably earlier than most um and then uh, and then yeah had the holiday of a lifetime for two or four months in, in china and hong kong so i think the message is that even um with little money there's ways and opportunities to travel um, it helps if you know people at the other end, so you don't have to pay hotel bills and stuff like that. But there are ways to travel. With Camp America, I went and ended up going three, year, three years um, uh, over a four-year period to different camps in the States, some with um, uh, socially disadvantaged kids and, and others with physically and mentally challenged kids. But ultimately, they would pay for me to go over there. When I got there, 
I'd work for three months, I'd get pocket money, but there was nowhere to spend the pocket money. So by the end of the summer, I actually had quite a lot of money and uh, um, to go traveling around the States. So like one year I bought a, a, an old car and uh, traveled around and drove from Boston to San Francisco and down to Mexico and back across again. Um, other times I bought an air ticket where you can fly anywhere you like for a month. Um, and uh, so you get a flight which went from New York to San Francisco. It was a night flight. Then you'd save on a bed. You'd get a food uh, or lunch or dinner or whatever it is. And then you wake up the next or you get there the next day and go off and tour the city and jump on the next plane the next day. So there's ways of doing things um, cheaply and, uh, and ways of making money along the way. Obviously, with VSO, uh, Voluntary Service Overseas, I came to South Africa, um, and basically everything was paid for. Um, I just had to use my money to, for savings over the next two years, which I did. Um, obviously, with going to these places like Camp America, you meet a lot of people from overseas. So on the camps I worked at, there was people from Australia and New Zealand and England and France and Amsterdam and South Africa. Um, so then you get build up contact. So I used the opportunity to go and visit friends in New Zealand for a, a while. I stayed there and toured around. Um, and now that I'm working in South Africa and the kind of support that we give to the rest of the continent of Africa, um, I've been all over the SADC regions. Um, I've been to Nigeria, I've been to um, Tanzania, I've been to Mozambique, uh, all over. And what I find, which is interesting, when I go back to England, people say to me, but how do you get by in Africa? Because, you know, obviously um, they don't have the ramps and the infrastructure, whatever, whatever. And I say to them, do you know what? I actually get on better in South Africa than anywhere I've been in the world. And the reason for that is that maybe, yes, Africa doesn't have the same kind of infrastructure that maybe Europe has or the, or the Americas. But the approach of the people, the attitude of the people is so great. There is never any hesitation towards getting a little bit of assistance when I need it. I can drive to pick and pay now. And when I get into my parking space, they know me there. Before I even uh, take my seatbelt off, there's two or three guys ready to help get me out of the car, put me in my wheelchair, and off I go. And yes, you know, you, you give them 10 rand for their help, but then... And the Sutu saying, Mutu Kumutu Kubuntu, is that people are people through people. So we help one another. And when they help me, I help them. But in England, I can sit in the same Tesco's car park for the whole day, and I can never get the kind of assistance that I need. Um, because people are too worried about, obviously, dropping you or, or hurting you in some kind of way, and they're worried that you might sue them, etc. But here, I go anywhere in Africa. I can go to Uganda. I can go around independently. I can get assistance wherever wherever I need to. When I go to Europe, I struggle. So the ironic thing is, I as a, from an independence point of view, with a disability, I can travel around Africa better than most places in the rest of the world. So, uh, so yes, hear. that's the kind of places it took me to. Huh? That's good to hear. It's good to hear that your experience has been so positive in Africa. Because, yes, people do get concerned about the infrastructure in Africa. So fantastic to hear that that's been your experience here. Yeah, I mean, obviously other people have different experiences and uh, um, 
you know, obviously there there is a lack of infrastructure in some areas, but um, but the, the people make it for me. It's the people of Africa and particularly South Africa, where if I go to a municipality and there's five or six steps, I don't need to ask anybody. If I sit at the bottom of the steps, within a minute, I've got two or three people saying, do you need the help up there? We can go and get some people to carry you up. Whereas in England, I'll sit there for the whole day. <laughs> so it's a, it's, it's a remarkable experience in Africa. Now, Mark, the, the gentleman who actually introduced me to you is a gentleman by the name of Musa Zulu, who's a friend of both of ours, a mutual friend. And he mentioned to me that you've done some rather epic journeys on a quad bike. And you mentioned it, how the quad bike has served you in when you're working here in Africa. But he mentioned something about South America and a quad bike. Tell us about that. With um, South America, um Again, I had the opportunity, um, somebody approached me and said, why don't I come on this expedition called Operation Rally, which operates all over the world. Operation Rally uh, is, a, again, it's a voluntary organization that goes to poor corners of the world, which needs support in one way or the other, usually through physical infrastructure. But they take a wide range of people. Um, usually there's between 80 to 100 people on an expedition. And they go off and work in groups of 10 or 12, 15 people uh, doing specific projects. And those groups come from a wide spectrum of society. Um, you get, uh, I mean, for example, you have uh, in our group, we had somebody that had just come out of jail. You'd had somebody who um, came from a very poor background, somebody who came from a very rich background. Even Prince William uh, joined Operation Rally um, several years ago. So they try to get a diverse group of people, different abilities, uh, and bring them together to do community development work, just to see how they interact and looking at the people dynamics. Um, when you know, when you're there and you're in the dirt and the rain and the mud, it doesn't matter if you're a, a member of the royal family or whether you've just come out of jail for robbery. You're there to help the people and develop and build something very positive. So um, I got on to Operation Rally, and that was a process in itself, um, which, uh, yeah, there's some funny stories around that. But um, ultimately, I was going to this place in South America, which was full of mountains and full of deep rural areas, which are sometimes hundreds of kilometers from any community or, um, uh, or, or town, rather. And I thought, well, how am I going to get around there? Um, you know, as an engineer, um, I decided to start putting my own uh, knowledge into practice. So I designed and built my own wheelchair, which I still have today, which is particularly rugged and good for kind of off-road travel. It's a manual chair, but uh, but it's got such a special place in my heart, even though I don't use it so much now. It's still with me. I'll never get rid of it. Um, but then I thought, well, I need more than that. So I wrote to Suzuki in the UK. At the time when quad bikes were still fairly new, they still had the old three-wheel bikes that would fall over. And then suddenly they brought in the four-wheel version. And I thought, well, gosh, that would be great to get a hold of one of those. So I wrote to uh, Mr. Cheney and said, I'm going off to Chile uh, on Operation Rally. I'd like to borrow one of your bikes, and I'll get you some good publicity. 
and uh, when I'm over there, and he said, no, sorry, you can't have that. So um, then I, uh, that's how I wrote him. Then I called him, told him the same story. He said, no, sorry, we haven't got any bikes to, uh, to give you for that expedition. And then it just so happened about a week later, I was down in London for a, a party with some friends. I was still quite young then. It was in the days when I still used the party, um, which happened to be just down the road from the Suzuki head office. I, I dropped in and I said, oh, I'm just looking for Mr. Cheney. Can, uh, can you call him? And he came down the stairs. There I was sitting in the lobby. And um, I said, I'm the chap that's been hassling you for the last few weeks. I'm going to Chile in two weeks' time. I want one of your bikes. And you would be uh, disappointed. And he took me around the back of the building and said, look, there's all our second-hand vehicles. Choose which one you want. And literally, I kind of came away having secured uh, was a Suzuki LT230 quad bike, which uh, I then had to find a way of getting it over to South America. So, um, so then I contacted Brazilian Airlines, which is Barriga Airlines, and they offered to fly it over for free but they wouldn't bring it back. So they would take it one way, but not the other way. So I decided I'll figure that one out whilst I'm there. But ultimately, this bike got over to Chile, and there we built a medical center on a remote island called Isla Tabon, where I was the first wheeled vehicle ever to go on the island. The only vehicle they had there was uh, an oxen and a sledge. Um, but no wheel vehicle would be on there. So my wheelchair was the first thing. Quad bike was the second, as it followed me after. Um, then we built a bridge for a, a school community. Um, the, 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 there was a river which was tidal. And when the tide was down, the kids could walk across to go to school. But they had to wait until the tide had gone back out to go back home. So we built a, a bridge. Um, we got the supplies given to us and we built the bridge too so the kids could get over and then um we had um an adventure trip now this adventure trip um we decided we, we arranged it ourselves but basically we had to travel um i think it was 40 or 50 kilometers to a group of houses this was like the nearest community where we were at the time on the mainland um and um, the only way to go there was over the mountains. So the quad bike would take me um, uh, across, well, towards the mountain range. Um, but maybe before I mention that, I, the quad bike proved very useful for the uh, for the projects we were doing because I could carry supplies, I could carry the tools and things like that to actually make the project happen. Um, obviously, there's a lot of physical stuff I couldn't do, but there's a lot of physical stuff I could do. Like with the medical center, I could uh, paint the lower half of the building while so the tall people could paint the upper half of the building, and I could prove very productive, and that, that was what was key. Plus, I used my engineering knowledge to help design things like the uh, the bridges, even though I'm a mechanical engineer, but uh, principles are very similar. Um, so on this adventure trip, I used the quad bike and we went through some real tough bush um, to get towards the mountains. And we had to chop down bamboo sometimes and ride over the bamboo. And um, I would get stuck on, on many occasions. And um, the guys were there as well. We'd help. That was part of the adventure was to, to get through. And they were using horseback at the time. But eventually, the terrain got so bad that I couldn't drive the quad bike anymore. 
and the only way forward was on horseback, which I'd never ridden a horse before. Um, so literally, because it was so remote uh, and uh, a very cold environment as well, being down right in the south, towards close towards the South Pole, um, I literally parked the quad bike under a bush. It wasn't going to get stolen because there was nobody around. And for the next um, four or five days, um, I traveled on horseback. And, you know, sometimes the mountains were so steep with a small kind of pathway of maybe a foot wide or foot and a half wide. These horses would ride along there with a hundred foot drop to the right hand side. And the only way they we had confidence in getting me over there was they actually tied me to the neck of the horse. We had these big kind of sheepskin saddles, so I'd plunk myself nicely and there be wedged in. But my back was not strong because of my disability. So by tying me around the horse's neck, if I was to fall off, because some of these mountain passes were very steep going up or very steep going down, then at least um, I would hopefully dangle around the horse's neck. Um, either that or we'd both go over and we'd both go to certain death because there were some very, very big drops and rocks at the bottom. Oh. So... Um, not, not wanting to hurt the horse, then uh, I made sure I stayed on as much as possible. But it was the most physically demanding thing I've ever had to do. And um, if I may just tell you this, I know when we, one day I rode for the whole day and with my back not being strong, I had to use my stomach muscles to uh, to hold myself up as well. And when I got to where we were going, I literally, I got taken off the horse, they untied me and collapsed on the floor. Um, and I was just lying there. The guide that we had took the horses to a nearby um, field or area where they were drinking and eating. You know, the horse that I'd been riding um, came back out from the other group of horses. It must have wandered about 50 meters to where I was lying down, just lying there exhausted. And suddenly his nose was like six inches away from me. And it just felt so wonderful. It was like this connection with the horse that suddenly... You know, it was like, yeah, we made it. We 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 got over those passes, and it was like um, there's a connection with animals. I'm sure those that have dogs and cats and everything else and horses, they 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 they're, animals are such amazing uh, things, and they all have different skills and, um, and mindsets and whatever. But this was a connection that I had with uh, the horse I was riding at the time. Uh, which was, As a guide dog owner, uh, I'd agree with you on that one totally. That the the connection with the animals is often something that is underestimated uh, by by people. It's quite an experience. It's underestimated and sometimes unexplainable. Um, yes. And and I'm a great lover of animals. I think they're all uh, got certain wonderful, wonderful personalities and skills that we can all learn from. Agreed. So, so yes, yeah, so that was um, obviously there was a bit of quad biking there, and there was a bit of horse bike riding. Um, but um, one thing I just want to tell you, which was quite interesting, is that the where we were working mostly was at the very end of the what's called the Pan American Highway, which is a road that goes all the way from uh, Tierra del Fuego now in, in the southern part of South America, right up through South America, across Central America, and up the west coast of the, the United States, uh, through Canada, and ends up in Anchorage and Alaska. It's about um, 
24,000K, I think it is, from start to finish. And um, when I was going down on the quad bike and they were extending the road, all the workers were there. And people quite often go on this journey on, on bicycles, on motorbikes or whatever. The first time I went down, I think they'd all thought that I'd come down the Pan American Highway because they dropped their tools. They jumped up and they were waving and clapping. And, and there I was with this big scarf around my head and uh, keeping the dust away. And I obviously looked very scruffy and dirty. So they all thought I'd done the Pan American Highway. But then the next day I would do it again. And the next day I would do it again. I think they suddenly realized that I was more of a local having dinner rather than doing this big, long journey. But that's, that's on my bucket list to do next time sometime. Imagine, yes. What, what would you say were some of the challenges that you faced on that trip, though? I mean, obviously, you, you've, you've described I, some of them in you know, navigating the terrain, um, but what sort of challenges did you encounter beyond that? Um, I suppose the... the, the, the most memorable experience uh, again with the quad bike when we were going to um, uh, another place where we were doing a project other people went ahead on horseback and I went on the uh, on the quad bike where I went with another chap as well he was on the back I was on the front and we carried uh, a lot of Chilean army rations to to feast ourselves over the coming uh, weeks and at one point um, we came across a river and the river was quite narrow, uh, but it was quite fast flowing. Now, the horses didn't have a problem getting across there. Uh, and I thought that I wouldn't have a problem getting across there as well. So um, Simon, the guy I was with, he got off the bike. And um, I decided um, at the time I was going to try and go across at speed and try and get the momentum of the bike to carry me over the uh, the river. Um, by that time, because of the quad bike, quad bike was quite unique, we had a couple of uh, spectators, a couple of local Chilean guys on their horseback, uh, just watching us from a distance and thinking it was quite quite amusing. So, yeah, a um, bit of a blunder on my side, but I decided to hit the river at speed, and it was like hitting a brick wall, and I basically got thrown off the bike. But um, these bikes are designed for floating. Um, as well, so you can actually tow them across uh, lakes and things like that if, if you need to, to a certain extent. Um, so I got thrown off the bike, and as I was being thrown over, my leg got caught in the the footrest, um, which was like a uh, it was a bar which went back into itself on the bike. So my foot went down there. So I was kind of stuck to the bike, and because it, the bike was floating off down the river. I got dragged underneath the bike and uh, I realized then that I was under the bike. Um, I couldn't get myself up and um, I didn't know how fast the bike was going or floating down the river, but all I knew was that I was stuck. And eventually I felt it kind of stop in some bushes at the side of the river. Um, and I still tried to get myself up and but it just wouldn't, the way my foot was positioned, I was stuck. And um, this was the, um, the kind of weird thing because um, obviously you don't know what's happening on the, the side of the riverbank and what the other guys are doing. All I knew is that I was underwater, couldn't move, and I was running out of air. 
And it got to the point where I actually pretty well gave up. I, I decided that this is it. I've had a great trip. <laughs> this is the uh, the last trip I'm going to be doing until I get to the Purdy Gates. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I suddenly, um, I ran out of air. And suddenly, um, I mean, the two Chilean guys and this guy, Simon, I'd rushed into the river. And just as I'd given up, the arm came down, grabbed hold of the back of my shirt or whatever, and pulled me up. And uh, and I gasped, uh, and they threw me over the shoulder, carried me to the bank, laid me on the ground. And what was so amazing was that I, I, I yes, it was a sense of relief beyond anything I could believe. I, I just went into hysterical laughter. I just laughed and laughed and laughed. I was crying with laughter. It was like... Um, it was weird because I, I, I suppose I thought I'd gone. This was it. Um, I had nowhere left. Uh, but suddenly I was there on the bank. I was alive, and we were joking about it. We said, you know, he's, Simon was saying what a bloody idiot I was to uh, to go so fast to live in the first place. And the Chilean guys didn't speak English, but I think they were thinking the same thing in in Spanish. And uh, but it was just such a, an amusing. Uh, experience afterwards there uh, we used the two Chilean guys with their horses to drag the, the bike uh, across in the end on a, on a rope and then they came back and stuck me on the back of their horse and carried me across the river that way and then off we went again and uh, carried on and um, so that was quite a challenge the horse riding was quite a challenge but I think um, yeah just the whole experience of trying to be as productive as I could with the restrictions I had with my physical disability so that I could be a useful member of the team. And that was just fantastic to to overcome those challenges. Again, I don't really, challenges are there, but I always try and turn challenges into opportunities. You know, the challenge with the horse turned into a, a marvelous experience, um, you know, both physically and, and again with with uh, with nature and with animals and, and the, the challenge with the quad bike help make me understand how important life is and how fragile it can be and how easy you can lose it. But the, the sometimes pushing the limits and putting yourself on the edge can be one of the, the greatest adrenaline rushes uh, you can possibly imagine. So I think there's a couple of uh, challenges that I experienced. I can imagine that at the time and there was one reaction, one response, and, and now, you know, looking back in hindsight, you can see so many other sides of it. But let's look at some of the the, the breathtaking moments. What would you say was the the greatest learnings or takeaways or or even experiences that you had on that trip? For me, I think Louis. Um, the way that I love people and, and I, 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 I love social interaction, I love trying to get the best out of people in my job now, you know, where I work, I believe that the, the, the people that you work with are the greatest tool of any company or any objective that you want to reach. And to be in a situation where you're thrown together, where you have all those different backgrounds that I mentioned, um, the fact that, again, I quite like the fact that I was the only the first wheelchair user to join Operation Rally in their history. 
still going now. It's called Rally International now. I'm sure they've had quite a few, but it was a way to um, open the doors for other people with disabilities to to join such excitement and uh, such adventures. Same with Camp America when I did that. I, I felt that I was opening the doors for others to to also join in, and I proved myself that I was a very valuable member of the expedition. And uh, um, so I think being thrown in that situation, and then suddenly, you know, you're, you're given a task. You're saying, right, you need to build a bridge. You've got three weeks to do it. Tell us what you need in terms of wood supplies and nails and concrete and everything else. We'll get it to you in a few days. Um, so I think uh, that was the greatest thing that came out for myself, and I apply it in my everyday life now. Um, I love the people I work with, and I believe I get the best out of them. I believe I, I roll my sleeves up and get on with uh, whatever it is I need to do, and I bring people along with me, and that's what a leader is supposed to do. So that's what it it really taught me. That's so true, and I think that's a very important lesson in leadership and in life that we do work as part of a bigger whole. Mark, if people would like to reach out to you and find out a little bit more about you, how can they contact you? Well, um, thanks for that, Louis. You know, um, the experiences I've spoken about today are uh, a snapshot of a lot of different experiences, which are can be very motivational and very inspiring and hopefully will help um, give other people ideas and opportunities, particularly if they have a disability. So I captured this in a book uh, called Eyes Wide Open, uh, which was published in uh, the end of last year. Um, and I think it's written as a way, yes, it uses disability as a vehicle, but it also um, gives hope and motivation to anybody that has a challenge, whether it's financial, whether it's relationships, whether it's a, a disability, um, ultimately it tries to show how you can turn any challenge into an opportunity. When a door closes, another one does open, and you just need to recognise the opportunities out there and 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 grab them with both hands. Sometimes you go along a route, it doesn't work. You come back, you try try the route, but ultimately um, this book is trying to show you that anything is possible if you want it bad enough um it's it's something which um uh would be of interest to anybody that wanted to read it that's available on um, amazon.com if you go to www.amazon.com and you search for eyes wide open by mark bannister then um both a hardback cover sorry the paperback cover and the kindle uh, is available um also i have an email address um, which is um, Bannister Mark, that's B-A-N-N-I-S-T-E-R, Mark, M-A-R-K, 118. That's one word, Bannister Mark 118 at gmail.com. Um, so people will be welcome to to drop me a, an email and then um, we can discuss and I can pass on um, telephone details if, if it's required. Um, so that would be, if they want to hear more inspiring stories and there's some very funny ones, which I haven't mentioned here today, then um, please do um, check out the book on Amazon. And um, there'll be a lot of things there which you can apply to your own lives and your own situation and hope, hopefully help you to 
which greater heights, greater opportunities. That's fantastic. And I think that's a great teaser to encourage people to find out more and to get hold of a copy of the book. So hopefully they will do that. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on A Different Way of Traveling. It's really been great to chat to you and to just learn a little bit more about your experiences and your mindset around what you do and how you do it. Today's travel quote comes from Jamie Lynn Beattie, who said, Jobs fill your pocket, adventures fill your soul. If you'd like to help support the show, please hop onto iTunes and leave us a rating and review. It helps other listeners to discover a different way of traveling. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. That's it from us for this time. You can find Accessible South Africa on the web at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za, on Facebook and Instagram at Accessible South Africa, and on Twitter at Accessible SA. You can also email us at podcast at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za. Editing by Craig Strachan using Hinderberg software. Our theme music is by Lu Chil Chow, based on a motive by Lois Strachan. Credits read by Musa Izulu. Thank you for joining us on A Different Way of Traveling. We'll see you next time. Until then, happy travels.